0: Hi everyone, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by BJ Oncology. Today, we're delighted to introduce an international panel of experts to discuss the latest in kidney and bladder cancer presented at the ASCO 2021 Annual Meeting. Chairing this session with Elizabeth Plimac from the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, and to be joined with Rana McKay from the University of California, San Diego, as well as Thomas Powell from the Barts Cancer Institute in London. In this podcast, the panel are going to discuss immunotherapy and bladder sparing approaches in urothelial carcinoma, adjuvant immunotherapy in cell carcinoma, updates from the CLEAR study, and more. I'll now pass you over to the experts for today's genitourinary cancer session with VJ Oncology.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Plimack, GU Medical Oncology here at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, and I am joined by friends and colleagues, Tom Powells and Raina McKay. And we are going to chat today about the kidney and bladder updates and abstracts presented at this year's virtual ASCO meeting. So um, let's start with urothelial. There were a lot of sort of follow-up data presented from larger trials that we saw earlier in the year, Tom. Um, But one of the most intriguing sort of approaches that I think we saw explored and presented here was the approach in the muscle-invasive setting, so localized bladder cancer, muscle-invasive Where the standard of care is neoadjuvant chemotherapy, obviously, there's been a lot of really exciting research around incorporating immunotherapy into this space. Uh, We saw Matt Galski's presentation on neoadjuvant nivolumab with chemotherapy um, with a bladder preservation approach. And I'm just wondering what you thought about that abstract and how it fits into the space in general as it's been evolving.
2: Well, Betsy, firstly, it's nice to see you and Rana, it's nice to see you too. Thank you so much for inviting me and asking me to take part. I, I do think that this is a really exciting area of urethelial cancer, and the reason why that's the case is I think it's probably in the long term gonna be the area where we can save most lives. Um, I'm always think we're gonna struggle with metastatic disease. We've really struggled to cure the majority of patients there, but with this earlier disease, it does look like it's more immunologically primed, firstly, and secondly, is we have this tempting data with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, which showed that we could you know, cure some patients and, and, uh, in the meta analysis. And, but we also have this challenge where about 60% of patients are relapsing and dying at the moment, or about 50 or 60%. So I think it is the right place for these drugs. And there was some tri- terrific data from Andrea Necki two or three years ago in the neoadjuvant setting with pembrolizumab, which really set a bar. with with a path CR rate of uh, about 40%, with only three cycles of pembrolizumab. There was some atezolizumab data in that space as well, which was not too dissimilar to that. Um, And it also lent itself to some nice biomarker work because one got sequential tissues so we could understand a lot about the disease. And so it really struck me as an area where we could could move forwards. And what we actually saw from there was actually a plethora of other studies. And we had immune combination trials and we've had chemo combination trials, which actually have shown similar path CR rates overall. And we can talk about that in a second. But what I thought was terrific about ASCO this year is we then went into what I would call the third generation of trials, which is bladder sparing, which I'll talk about first but also the combination with radiation, which I'm happy to talk about after. Um, Max um, Galski and his team, uh, by the way, these were all investigative initiated trials. Super important to remember that in bladder cancer, we're quite good at doing this. I do kidney cancer too, and I think we're less good. And I think one of the, I'd like to you know, congratulate my colleagues in, in the US and Europe for doing these successfully, very hard to do. Absolutely. In, in this trial, um, it's um, basically a cisplatin eligible group you get uh, patients received gemcitabine and cisplatin, uh, and they received nivolumab as a triplet. And then at the end of um, four cycles of treatment, they would then, uh, if, they, if they did a cystoscopy to define what they decided as a cl- clinical complete response, which is a complicated issue. I'm not going to talk about now, but it is something we need to address in the future. And those patients that were in a clinical complete response. But then we we're, were able to go undergo basically a, a period of observation on immune therapy to work out how long they could, could that immune response could last for that complete response. And actually, what, um, uh, what Matt's study showed is 31% of the original cohort, which I think was 48%, um, went into this clinical complete response. And of those 31% of patients, the majority stayed in this clinical, complete, complete response. Now, the follow-up is only about 12 months, and it's short, and there's we, but it is tantalising that there is the possibility that this is an attractive approach, because then the second part to it is there was a Spanish group um, which did Dervatremian radiation therapy, and then there was another US group, um, which Arjun Balard led, um, which looked at gemcitabine radiotherapy and pembrolizumab as triplet therapy. The regimes were slightly different. The way they gave radiation therapy was slightly different. But that's what happens in investigating the shaded 12 from around the world. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. And what they also showed was actually quite high c C-R, or clinical complete response rates um, in the region of about 50%. But they also showed about 75% of patients um, disease-free at six months and 12 months, respectively. Now, yes, of course, we've got short follow-up. But this does lend ourselves to a new, I think a new chapter um, of urethenial cancer, looking at immune therapy, because we've got randomized trials in this space, immune therapy and bladder sparing approaches. And so I think it's a very exciting time. And it's one of my, you know, it was my highlight for, for ASCO actually.
1: I agree. I mean, I think it's fascinating to see bladder sparing approaches moving to the forefront. It's harder to ask the question about doing less than doing more. Um, And I absolutely echo your sentiment that we should congratulate these investigators for leading investigator-initiated work. I mean, most of the oral sessions were investigator-initiated studies and that's that's sort of where we, we come up with the new ideas that aren't picked up elsewhere. Question for you, combining chemotherapy with immunotherapy. We have a lot of data in the metastatic space. Um, We didn't really gain too much by adding immunotherapy to chemotherapy in that setting. Do you think the neoadjuvant space is different? And if so, how and what should we look for in the future around this question?
2: So I think the, 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 the question you've asked is a difficult one. I don't know the answer to it. In the metastatic space, unlike in lung cancer, and actually we even saw some nasopharyngeal data at ASCO this year um, showing know, really terrific hazard ratios by combining chemotherapy with immune therapy. And I don't know why it's not working in urethelial cancer, but it doesn't look like it is in the metastatic space. 130 and 361 showed us that. Remember, in those trials, patients are also getting maintenance immune therapy after completion of chemotherapy, and that's likely to be deriving some benefits. So when the hazard ratios are coming in in the med 0.8 or 0.8, you know, and the response rate's 47 versus 45%, it's hard to convince yourself we're adding very much. Logic dictates that if you translate that into the neoadjuvant setting, it won't make a big difference if you use the same drugs. And actually when you look at the single agent data across trials, and there was a memorial study with a atezolizumab and chemotherapy there presented just recently at ASCO, but there've been previous studies with, with, with pembrolizumab and indeed with nivolumab and chemotherapy from different groups. And you look at the path CR rates, they're coming in between 45 and 50%, which isn't actually that different from what you receive with chemotherapy alone and not that different from the single agent therapy of 40%. So the early pointers, as much as I hope it's going to be different, the early pointers are, that, that see it, that we that we aren't going to see a big bounce in Path C R. Now we don't know about disease-free survival and overall survival yet, and that's really important. We haven't really validated that immune therapy biomarker yet, and that's also relevant. Um, nevertheless, I'm not expecting to see a huge bounce in Path C R. If you want my hypothesis about what's going on, I think there are two possibilities. The first is if you when one looks at lung cancer and urethelial cancer, there are huge differences biologically between the two, obviously. TMB and pdl one are high for both, but we do have this quite powerful TGF beta stromal influence in urethelial cancer, which appears less prominent in, uh, in lung cancer. And it may be that that is having an effect on T cell trafficking involved in this synergistic effect. It's possible, I'm not suggesting it's correct, but it's a hypothesis. And the second hypothesis, which I think we can learn from the breast cancer field, is when you use different chemotherapy drugs, not all chemotherapy is the same. We all know not all chemotherapy is the same. And actually some are more myelosuppressive than others. Some are having different effects on Tregs. And the assumption that gemcitabine is going to do the same as a taxane is immunologically is probably as flawed as saying all the pdl one biomarkers are the same. We know that's not true. And therefore, we know that different chemotherapy drugs are likely to have a different effect. Gemcitabine is immunogenic Domestos. And now, people have said to me before, it's because they can affect the T regs as well. Yes, there might be some truth in that. But mm-hmm. the reality is, I suspect that the gemcitabine is causing a problem. And that's why, you know, we probably ought to explore perhaps other combinations. And I think that's why the infortumab-vidotin combination, which is also being tested in the neoadjuvant space, which is a different agent with a different payload, MMAE, rather than, uh, rather than gemcitabine, which is less myelosuppressive may turn out to be important. So we will answer that question in the end, Betsy. So
1: that's a great segue to more infortimab So and to the metastatic space. So when we're talking about metastatic disease, obviously our paradigm change with the Javelin 100 data that you presented last year, um, where we start mostly with chemotherapy, we saw the frontline studies read out with a minimal benefit to pd one high patients with checkpoint alone. So we've really moved away from that. But then comes the follow-up data for infortimab-bodotin with pembrolizumab. What did you think of those data and where do you do you think that's coming to us clinically? Do you think it'll be a frontline approach? Um, and what are your thoughts about sort of operationalizing that?
2: So, I mean, I think that the question you've asked might be the most important question in metastatic urethelial cancer at the moment, in my opinion. The reason I think that's the case is the data that's coming out with EV plus Pembro looks like we're getting um, more durable, longer term responses. I think the longer term data, it's a small cohort of patients and it is important to stress that. Um, But I, and you were involved as well, Betsy, the, axi- the original Mike Atkins. I remember I was I- when the I was in the room when we when we were back in rooms <laughs> when uh, when Mike Atkins um, at a CITSI meeting presented the axitinib and pembrolizumab renal cancer data, and it was uh, almost too good to be true. And as it turns out, it was true, and we did see response rates that were additive, and we see now response rates of fifty and sixty percent, and we saw recent disease-free survival. Uh, progression pre-survival of, of, of 24 months for Len Pen, you know who would have imagined we'd have re- seen that? I think the unfortunate in Pembrolizumab data, it has the same feel to me with that. The, the, the markers that are coming out of that data set are consistently better than you would expect. And, um, and I am really excited about a study called EV302, which is EV plus Pembro versus frontline chemotherapy gemesis or gem Carbo. as the control arms and as time changes, there are some challenges with the study. And that's a good thing because it suggests the move, the field is moving forwards, but that study is gonna be an incredibly important trial. And I think we will be chemotherapy. In my opinion, I think we will be chemotherapy with that trial.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, super exciting. Well, we will circle back to you at the end for also, I know you had some really quick picks for us to highlight in your athelial, but let's switch gears just for a minute to renal cell carcinoma. Uh, more than a minute, because there's a lot to talk about. Um, So Raina, so excited to have you with us. I know you did an excellent discussion on the adjuvant plenary session. Um, You don't need to repeat all the points you made, but how do you suggest we view the data as we have it currently? What are you looking to in the future? And where do you see this fitting for us clinically, both short term and long term?
3: Well, thank you so much for having me, Betsy. I think it's really an exciting time in renal cell carcinoma because the field has just been changing so rapidly. I do think that the adjuvant um, pembrolizumab data are really groundbreaking in that they are catapulting us into a new era of adjuvant-based trials in RCC. I think it's been a long time coming. We've all been eagerly awaiting the results of what are going to be the outcomes for adjuvant IO therapy. Um, And I think we're just beginning to see the, um, the start of a series of trials that are likely going to be reporting out in the next several years that are likely going to change the way that we practice. You know, it's been unfortunate, not to say unfortunate, but I think we were all excited around the VEGF adjuvant data. I think we were eager for it, but then when it came out, it was a little bit of a downer. You know, it was um, Mm -hmm. the, the, There was a signal with regards to disease-free survival, but the toxicity was great. There was decrements on quality of life, and there was really no signal with regards to overall survival. Now, these trials were not necessarily designed with OS as their primary endpoint, but there was nothing, the curves were not really separating. They were literally lying on top of each other. And I think the data is still, it's still way early. Um, I think there's only been, you know, 25% of the OS events that were, you know, suspected to occur Thus far, for like final analysis, so I think it's still pretty early, but I think the fact that we're seeing a tremendous disease free survival benefit this early on and also beginning to see a signal for OS again it's still early, and I think we our patients are living longer and living better, and we need to We kind of once once we start having more events, see how things settle out. But I think this is going to be the start of a new era. I think there's a lot of questions to be had because the design of the subsequent you know trials to be reported. There's perioperative approaches where you you prime with one dose of nivolumab and then continue for nine months. There's six months. This this study was twelve months. You know, there's a lot of different iterations on duration of therapy, and we really haven't. You know, it's somewhat arbitrary, the selection of, you know, six versus 12 versus nine. Um, you know, so I think, but I, I think the reason, um, I think this data is really groundbreaking because like I said, it just catapults us into this new era of, um, and the quality of life data too. You know, we were surprised with VEGF inhibition because the toxicity profile and quality of life impact is dramatically different in the adjuvant setting and half of the trials conducted needed to undergo dose modifications because the regimens were too toxic. And so the fact that we're seeing, you know, uh, toxicity and AEs kind of comparable to that in the metastatic setting. And um, we saw a little bit of, uh, um, you know, insights into treatment discontinuations, things like that. It was, you know, I think 17% of patients underwent treatment discontinuation for AEs in the Pembro arm. So not that that we would see with um, VEGF TKIs. So definitely groundbreaking.
1: For sure. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think I'm really excited about this approach. We wouldn't in oncology if we weren't optimists and sort of excited to see immunotherapy make a dent in this space. I think mechanistically it works as well. So I'm going to ask Tom and Raina the question that's all over Twitter, which is what will you do with the next patient you see in clinic that comes to you with high-risk pathology to discuss adjuvant treatment? Would you recommend discuss tunitinib? Recommend it. Discuss pembrolizumab? Recommend it. Or sit tight and observe. Tom, what would you do?
2: So I think that it's um, a difficult question, and I think that um, the the ESMO guidelines committee, which I'm involved with, has met and had this discussion. And I'm very happy to share it with you now. Um, uh, the there there is a genuine um, need to see overall survival, um, and. Uh, That's unanimously agreed by almost everyone I meet because inevitably we are over-treating probably 50% of the patients who will never need the treatment. And the treatment is associated with irreversible long-term toxicity in a small proportion of patients, some Mm -hmm. of which can be devastating. Um, So I think that there is uh, that... um, important statement. The study was well conducted and is robust. um, And um, I think that there was the inclusion of the M1NED population. And some people were saying to me, well, how much of that M1NED population, how much is that skewing that survival signal? We don't know that yet. And that is important to some people who I've spoken to. Um, I think that when you ask people what they think of the results, and that includes the group that I've spoken to, the results are better than people were expecting. and, uh, and, and I think um, the, the thing that seems to be swaying people's opinion, and I think the thing that will sway the patients as well in the end, will be the trend towards overall survival and the plausibility of immune therapy biologically having long-term cure, because we've kind of seen that in the metastatic space.
1: So I'm going to try to do the impossible, which is pin down Tom (laughs) Pell. Next patient in your clinic, high risk pathology. What do you, they say, what should I do? What do you recommend?
2: I would say to them that there are risks associating with having this therapy because I don't know that you will live longer. But if I I was in your position, I would probably have it.
1: Interesting. Reina, what would you say?
3: Yeah, no, I think that um, it's, it's all about goals of therapy for the patient. And I think every patient that walks into the door has a different, um, different goals and different, you know, things that are of value to them. And I think the, our job is to kind of relay the data and help interpret that data. And, um, you know, I think what we're all optimistic about is, you know, is there going to be a tail on the curve? Are people going to actually be with the receipt of adjuvant therapy that otherwise would not be that may not necessarily be captured by us just looking at medians and so I think that that is sort of the hope that we all we are all um, holding on to but we haven't shown that in data thus far yeah. and so personally at the present time I think the data you know in the u.s sunitinib is FDA approved for use. And I can count on my hands the number of times (laughs) I've used in the adjuvant setting. Yeah. And these data, even as they stand right now, in my mind are better than that. I agree with that. You know, and so, um, you know, so that's, I think my point of my point for recommendation around a therapy is that we have an FDA approved therapy. That's not the greatest and this is better than that. And so I think sharing that weighing the pros and cons, I think You know, for you've got a young patient with very high risk disease or like you said, M1, NED, even though those patients only were 15 percent of the patient, you know, it was it was actually skewed towards the lowest risk patient, which is why I was like baffled to see the outcome that we saw, because the majority of patients, if you calculate their like UISS, it's like 50 to 80 percent like. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? they it's actually better risk. And so they're not, I don't think that those patients are skewing the data, but we have to see, um, and also patterns of progression we have to look at, but nonetheless, right. I think this is better than where we're currently at right now. So I think it takes that discussion of saying, you know, depending on what is important to you, um, you know, driving for a decision, I probably would lean towards it in a very high risk patient.
1: Right. I mean, I think that's mostly what we're hearing. I'll I'll counterpoint that gently to say, absolutely, it's a discussion and there is always the right patient to take that risk based on the fact that we hope and think that OS will be positive. But the only thing that gives me pause is we have such good combinations in the first line metastatic space, which I'll use to segue to that discussion for you, Raina, um, that it's possible that we actually do better and uh, sort of erase that, that OS benefit that we get with early treatment with single agent with our more and more robust and more powerful combination therapies. And that's why I think OS might be negative. I don't think it'll be negative, but I think if it is, it might be because we have such good treatments subsequent when people recur, more than that it didn't work. And so I do want to see OS before I would recommend it to a patient. But great to have this conversation, great to have these data to talk about. And uh, I think, you know, the longer we keep our patients with renal cell alive, the longer it'll take for the events to happen, <laughs> but it's a good problem to have, so. Um, we'll sit tight and wait for that. But Reina, let me segue to metastatic disease. So we there's been an explosion in this space um, recently, and we saw some really important, I think, long-term follow-up data from some of the earlier studies that have read out. Um, do you want to talk to us about sort of the highlights that you gleaned from those updates?
3: Absolutely. So I think, you know, we saw updated data from the CLEAR trial, which was a uh, Trial randomizing to lenv and LEN-PEM versus sunitinib, um, and we saw the quality of life data that were presented from that study. And you know, first off, it, it's it's a profoundly positive study. And as Tom alluded to earlier, you know, PFS of almost 24 months, which is pretty incredible. I think even pinned against you know trying not to compare across these trials, but that's pretty impressive. Especially when you look at the control arm, which had a PSF, PFS of around like nine months or so, which is you know, different than the PFS control arm that we saw for, um, you know, uh, Keno 426. So I think that data is pretty impressive. I think we've all had this hesitation that, oh gosh, the, you know, um, the toxicity profile may be a little bit um, you know, worse with the uh, Pem, you know, 70% of patients had, uh, you know, grade three, four tox, you know, 23% of patients or so had to stop the um, Lenbatinib. Um, but it was actually really encouraging to see that the quality of life data um, appeared to be, um, you know, improved over Sunitinib when you look at Lenpem. Now, I have to say, but... Quality of life analyses are uh, not to say a little bit troubling, but they're, you know, they're exploratory endpoints. What is statistically significant versus what is cleaning clinically meaningful? is variable and um you know when the instruments the type of instruments that are utilized are all different across the studies when the instruments were deployed or all utilized different, different across the studies who's <laughs> filling out the quality of life questionnaires like if i'm sick in the hospital i'm not filling out a quality of life questionnaire exactly. so i think there's a lot of you know by potential bias that comes in um when you look at quality of life that has to really be accounted for but i have to say it was great to see the data get presented and you know andrea actually broke down sort of um some of these nuances and the biases that that can exist in quality of life analysis but at the end of the day i think the point is that it was comparative data it was you know a randomized trial where you at least had you know the same pool of patients that were filling out the sunitinib questionnaires and so you know i think the fact that patients are potentially having improved quality of life is nice to see. So um, that data got presented and, and we've seen now quality of life data presented from Nevo Cabo showing a similar type of effect. We saw the data from um, uh, Checkmate 214. Um, I think the Keynote 426 data, again, different instruments, different time points didn't seem to be worse than sunitinib. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and that patient population was had a lot more favorable risk patients. So maybe they're just not as sick from their disease. Um, and that is skewing why the results look the way that they do. Um, but nonetheless, I think it was nice to see that at least there wasn't, you know, decrements or at least it's on par with Sutent or in some domains a little bit better than Sutent. So it was nice to be able to see that. Um, and then we also saw the updated data. I think this is the last data cut for you keynote 426, you know, with. You know, almost four years of follow up, and you know, continues to be a very efficacious regimen. And you know, I hate hate to do this, but in my mind, I, I'm thinking, you know, durability of these regimens. And compared IOIO IO, compared to like you know IOVGF, if you're looking at the PFS curves um, and looking at the OS curves, you know, there seems to be with Nevo it be sort of a tail that emerges starting around 30 months, 30 months, and just holds steady there for. Like right around 30%. And I don't know that we're seeing that. I don't know that the studies are designed for us to be able to see that. But you know, I still kind of now that we're having longer follow-up from keynote 426, you know, the big question is continues to be durability, you know, um, when you're thinking of, you know, IOIO io versus IO by Jeff. But it's great to be in this situation where we have, you know, four very active regimens that have demonstrated improvements in overall survival and response rates.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard when the tails are full of hash marks for censoring. And that's where, you know, hopefully this won't be the last of 426. I always say we need, you know, we need to follow these patients till they all die of something else or cancer <laughs> to really know who we've cured. Um, but, yeah, it's good. It's good to see the long term, you know, sort of durability, and the landmarks still being hit, which is nice. An um, and then I think we so that kind of covers the the major updates we saw. Right. For the first line. Metastatic, uh, good, good. Um. So, Reina, any abstracts that you thought, you know, maybe sort of really early data or things that were more provocative than definitive, um, that you think were compelling or that we should keep our eye on?
3: Yeah. You know, I actually um thought that the work from uh, Dr. Pal and the City of Hope group looking at CB85 or CBM588 with Nevo ipi compared to just Nevo ipi alone and Intermediate, poor risk, newly diagnosed RCC was pretty provocative. Um, You know, I think we've all, um, you know, been intrigued by the microbiome and the role that um, it can play within, um, you know, response to immunotherapy and cancer therapy in general. And first off, have to just commend them on putting together a randomized trial in this space with an investigator initiated, right? Yeah. Also investigator right. in, initiated with this probiotic, you know, agent um, that demonstrates a signal that there could potentially be improved responses. But again, the numbers are so low, the control arm had a response rate of, I think 20%, which is, you know, below the bar for Nevo IP yeah, yeah. from the phase three trials, but I, you know, I'm excited to see the potential for that approach, um, you know, in the future. So, so definitely, I think, think to continue to watch out for uh, things to come from that group.
1: Microbiome, fascinating space. So Tom, I'll send the same question over to you. So what were your sort of um, abstracts from ASCO that might've been a little early, not yet practice changing, but things that made you kind of raise an eyebrow and say, that's one to watch?
2: I, I like Jonathan Rosenberg's um, uh, well, and the group that he led the study with Rogaratinib um, plus Atezo front frontline FGF halted um, uh, urothelial cancer with response rates of 58%. Only a handful of patients, but you might remember that we um, we of course you do. But we've looked at combinations before. Um, with vegfT, with, um, with other targeted therapies, with immune therapies in a personalized approach in the second line setting without great success. Uh, and so I think this is maybe saying if you move it frontline, maybe it works a bit better. And so I'm excited about a study called NORS which is a randomized trial of erda versus erda plus PD-1. So I'm excited by that, and and I think that that um, was was something which was a little bit buried. Perhaps I, uh, but, but um, you know, there were so much other things to talk about at the meeting. And the other thing, I think, I I agree with uh, with Rana. I think that there is this issue around um, quality of life assessment of patient reported outcomes, and and we need to look really under the bonnet at the detail before we start making big trials trial comparisons, saying this one has it and this one doesn't, I worry about that being an oversimplification.
1: Excellent, this was so much fun, both of you. Really fun to discuss these abstracts. Um, I can't wait, so we can do it in person, hopefully, Very soon. Very soon. hopefully next year or before, but I'm glad progress continues despite the pandemic. It's great to have the opportunity to talk about them and think about them and really exciting for our patients that that we're moving the bar, um, which is great. So thank you, Tom, thank you, Rena.
2: Thank Thank you very much.
0: See you soon. Bye bye. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this post Asko genital urinary cancer session with BJ Oncology. If you found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at BJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit BJoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.